I will uh, I will endeavor to read these and give you something that you will immediately love, as if it was a new kitten from the top. I'm Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club. Hello, I'm Andrew Mayle, and you're listening to the Mojo Record Club, a place where music lovers, musicians, crate diggers, writers, readers, and special guests get to share their love for classic albums, weird lost gems, and brand new revelations. My guests today are Mojo Senior Editor Danny Eccleston and Jethro Toll Frontman, Kingpin, and Thaumaturge Ian Anderson. Hello to you both. Hello, um, and how are you doing? Very well, Ian, very well. Um, I'm going to, not that you need an introduction, but I'm going to give you a short one anyway. Since forming the multi-million selling prog rock legends Jethro Tull in 1967, Ian Anderson has had a music career of innumerable creative highs, releasing band and solo albums of astonishing quality, including, but not restricted to, such personal favourites as 1971's Aqualung, 1978's Heavy Horses, 1987's Crest of a Nave, 1995's Roots and Branches, I'm indulging myself here, 2003's Rupees Dance, and a recent brace of belters, 2022's The Zealot's Game, and, correct me on pronunciation here, Ian, Rookflut? Is that correct? Well, we say Rook, which is the, uh, with the umlaut, which is the, an old Icelandic word meaning destiny. And flirter, which is the, again, with an umlaut, is the German word for the instrument I play, the concert flute. Fantastic. Flute of destiny. But rock flute is fine. Rock Rock flute is the easy one. (laughs) Okay. Released just two months ago. Fierce political and scientific mind, restless innovator, demented Nureyev with a flute, Ian Anderson, welcome. Well, thanks very much, and uh, that that was some accolade. And um, the uh, demented um, Nureyev with a flute is an interesting one. I think of they, myself they... more as I think of more myself more as a, a rather sedate, um, aging Michael Portillo <laughs> with a flute because I'm a I'm a train guy. <laughs> I use oh. I I use the train to travel to concerts when I can. That is um, what they call the um, in radio a perfect link because your next big venture is the Seven Decades Tour, which um, kicks off the Bristol Beacon on the seventeenth of April, twenty twenty four. And the to have such kind of riches, such a vast back catalogue, and then sort of think, how am I going to? present those seven decades within a single set list. I mean, is that a delight or a challenge? It was um, neither directly because I came up with a set list and it just occurred to me that with possibly one exception, it was already an example of a song from each of the decades from the 60s through to the 2020s. Um, So it was easier to slot in um, and slightly modify to uh, still fulfil that sense of something, at least, from each of the seven decades. But, it, it, of course, it is misinterpreted as being 70 years of Jethro Tull. And, of course, we haven't been at it. That would have meant I would have had to have started on my sixth birthday. Um, so, in fact, it is. we started it towards the end of the... In 1968 was the mm. beginning of Jethro Tull, and we're... Now, 2023, so something has happened in each of those decades. Absolutely. But it, sound, it sounds more impressive than it really is. Oh, that's, uh, but that's, that's what marketing and promotion is about, so I'm told. Well, in, with the, in, the, in the mood of uh, marketing and promotion and to get people in the mood and racing to book their tickets, I thought I'd play a bit from... Um, ah, now maybe I need to check. Will uh, Locomotive Breath be on the set list for the uh, Seven Decades Tour? Yeah, there, there, are, there are probably only two songs that are always on the set list and have mm. been, in fact, since 1971, which are Aqualung and Locomotive Breath. And... I guess because that that album Aqualung was a not exactly a f- new departure, but it, it it anchored the the sense that I had about my own songwriting of being a singer songwriter, someone who could pick up an acoustic guitar and do something on my own, or I could do it in the in the context of um, um, you know fronting a, a rock band as a vocalist and flautist. So I I think it was an important album for me 
and the songs Aqualunga Locomotive Breath both fit that 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 idea of there being something a little more to it than just rock music simply yes. because Aqualung has quite a few acoustic guitar gentle passages in it a lot of dynamic range and um locomotive breath begins with a um a, a, a solo piano introduction which takes elements of classical music and and jazz blues into uh, to lead us into the song so you know they're, they're 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 both good stage songs, and I think they they've earned their place forevermore in uh, in the in the set list that we play. But everything else is a move a movable feast, and it does indeed move even this year because I have to remember I'm performing in places where I might have been uh, just a few months ago or a year mm. ago, and I've got to be careful not to play the same set list again. So yeah. the seven decades doesn't mean that it's the same set list, you know, from now yes. until. Uh, through 2024, it will still be changing and modifying um, simply because I have to be observant of of the uh, the realities of having played in. I mean, I think I've been in Rome, for example, uh, for the last three years at least, if not four, um, in the same in the same venue, and um, and so you, you've got to make sure that you don't come back as I am in uh, February of 2024, playing in Rome again, that um, I'm not accidentally um playing all the same material from the previous occasion it, it is actually really a bit tortuous because it's easy enough for me to do i've got a good memory and i'm sitting there checking the uh, the times and the keys that things that are in the tempos and coming up with a sensible set list but for the other guys in the band and even a couple of the guys in the crew it means a lot of rethinking and um, yeah. and for the crew guys reprogramming all the video links and all the things that go on so it's uh, it's not it's not um it's not plain sailing and certainly the idea of just changing it on the night saying hey what about doing this song tonight is um i'm going to get some very uh, long faces amongst the band <laughs> and uh, and a couple of the crew well let's let's play uh, a little bit uh, from uh... Jethro Tull live staple locomotive breath focusing because we can't play it all on the astonishing flute solo from our gathered guest this is locomotive breath from Aqualung originally released on the chrysalis label in 1971 <laughs> Ian, um, it's interesting what you were saying about um, a, a world of music where you can show your breadth and just move away from something that was simply rock music. Because the album that you've brought in to talk about today is also, I think, an album that kind of reveals the sort of breadth of kind of sound and influences and musical direction that you could accommodate in, in an album from 1967. It's come out fighting Genghis Smith the second album from the English folk rock sage Roy Harper, produced by Shell Tell Me, with arrangements by Keith Mansfield, and first released on CBS in 1967. And, Ian, when would you have first heard it? Well, the, the tale goes back to a time when, in the mid-'60s, I was at school, at a grammar school in, in Blackpool, and Roy Harper, being a little older than me, was at a another grammar school. Uh, I think it was King Edwards in uh, Lytham, not far away. Uh, we never never met, never knew each other. But um, I heard in the period of time just before I left Blackpool to go south to uh, try and be a professional musician, I had heard these rather folklorish tales about um, some wacky hippie guy called Roy Harper, who had uh, made a name for himself in London playing contemporary folk music. And so he became a little bit of a a fictional hero in the sense that he had escaped 
the northwest of England and managed to become a professional musician and performer and was doing okay. I mean, obviously far better than I was doing at the time. So I, I resolved that, you know, I should keep an eye out for Mr. Roy Harper when I did eventually get to London and and Jethro Tell was formed. So we were just coincidentally, I think through, possibly through John Peel, who had a famous radio show at the time, uh, we, we did run into Roy and I went to see him perform a few times in folk clubs around London area. But it was... It was his album, Come Out Fighting Genghis Smith, was the first one I heard. I didn't I didn't hear his original album uh, until sometime later, but it was my musical and signpost companion in 1968 and in what was a warm summer after a, a, a hellish winter the, the, the year before. Um, it was a warm and rather delirious sort of atmosphere in North London and in uh, Regent's Park and in on Hampstead Heath and places that were redolent of that, that end of the hippie era kind of laziness that seemed to pervade. And, and Roy's album was something that I, I had a not very good record player in my bed sitter. And um, I would play this, this album Partly because it was completely different music to the music I played uh, with the early Jethro Tull. It was that was rock and blues, and and suddenly there was this guy doing these rather very very personal, but but rather clever uh, song lyrics, which were very observational. They, they they tended to be about people, as in. Well, the first three songs on the on the album, Freak Streets, You Don't Need Money and Aging Raver, they are they are pictures. They they are they're they're quite simple and naive. They're, they're almost like a Lowry painting of a factory town. You know, they have this symbolic little cartoon and stick figures embedded in the lyrics. And I I, I was very taken by that. And that, that became something of a not exactly a template, but a little bit of a direction, a little bit of a signpost as to where I might try to modify my own musical efforts as a songwriter to try and incorporate elements of jazz and blues alongside something that I suppose was contemporary folk. Roy, Roy didn't do rock. Roy, Roy was a Roy was a, a freewheeling guy with an acoustic guitar and a, and a thumb. You know, he hitchhiked most places. And um, it was only later, I think, through knowing me, through knowing uh, the uh, guys in Led Zeppelin and in Pink Floyd, that he began to fantasize about himself as a folk <laughs> rock kind of a guy and wanted to be in a rock band because that seemed far more glamorous and exciting. Whereas I think that the attraction that was that existed for me and probably for Jimmy Page and uh, Robert Plant and and for some of Pink Floyd, you know, it was the opposite. You know, we we rather loved what he did because he didn't have all the impediments of road crews and lots of complicated mm. equipment and big shows. It was this this very pure, simple hitchhiking uh, minstrel that that um, that we rather envied, I suppose, as a as a, a simple and more idealistic form of musical life. Whereas he was fascinated by what we did, and of course, we were both we were both wrong you know we should stick to what we're good at <laughs> it's it is an album without impediments and it's a kind of really interesting way and of talking about roy and this record because obviously there are there are tracks here that have their roots in folk music have their roots in les cousins and you can hear little bits that might sound like Donovan or the Incredible String Band, but then there is a freedom to the record as well, a kind of an, an embracing of kind of improvisatory or seemingly improvisatory lyrics of jazz, of kind of extending the life and length of a track beyond what might even seem like its natural point. I want to give listeners an example of what Roy was doing with um, the perhaps knowingly titled In a Beautiful Rambling Mess from Come Out Fighting Genghis Smith, um, originally released on CBS in 1967. Pleading words, burning eyes, and a pain heart heartache. 
Scorching fury of youth that fills me yet. But as sweet as these memories are Fantastic sky They're as near as the farthest star Just a daydream away Sheltered by some nearest far Wanna sky laughing, loving you're listening to the Mojo Record Club. There is a brilliant bit in that song where Roy seems to break off from the actual composed lyrics to observe, what a fantastic sky. And that seems to capture something of the kind of wayward appeal of this record, but also what you were saying about the fact that you were listening to it in what seemed like this idyllic summer. Yes, it, it it was, and I think that the frequent mentions of, particularly, sights and sounds and mm. smells of of London itself is, is something that was particularly relevant to me because I just moved to live in London for the first time, and the whole place was um, big, uh, a little scary, and not being a, a social kind of a person. I, you know, I lived on my own. I didn't ever go out or meet people, didn't go to clubs or do whatever. I mean, I, 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 I was a loner and I didn't, um, didn't venture very far um, from my, my home address, which was Kentish town, um, a bed sitting Kentish town in, in, uh, in the summer of 68. So I, you know, getting to Hampstead Heath or Highgate cemetery, another of the, uh, the tracks on this album, the, 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 these were achievable on foot or in a short ride on the tube train. But I think the, the important thing for me about about Roy was not only being a, an innovative songwriter, but he had real skills, untutored skills in, in playing instrumental acoustic guitar, mm. unlike Donovan or, you know, Paul Simon or or Bob Dylan or any of those guys who frankly were strummers, you know, yeah. great songwriters perhaps, but they, they didn't have instrumental expertise. Uh, Bert Jansch, on the other hand, did. You know, he was he was he was another contemporary of uh, of that era, a contemporary of Roy Harper's, and someone who had a a background in traditional folk more so, I think, than Roy. But uh, had a had a had a you know some again self-taught guitar expertise. But but Roy's playing, and then you know he did he did lots of intricate little bits of guitar playing, which were very clever things that fell under his fingers rather than necessarily were incredibly worked out. And like me, he didn't read music, he didn't have any real musical theory. He used different guitar tunings and and something would just fall under his fingers and sound good and he would make that into a song. And and that that that's what I then learned to do in that summer of 68 when I started writing the songs to follow up our first album, This Was, which was released in the summer of 68. And so I embarked upon a songs that were some of which ended up being on the stand-up album in 69, but certainly I, I feel owed something to the songwriting process as I imagine it that that Roy employed. And so the acoustic guitar was my composing instrument. Certainly the flute was not. And I didn't have a keyboard and so and I didn't play keyboards, but you know, guitar was was always sitting there, and that was my my starting point for thinking up a new tune, whether it was Locomotive Breath or Aqualung a couple of years later, or whether it was some of the gentle acoustic songs that um, that came out in the in in the first three or four years of Jethro Tull. But I, I think it was the the sense of encouragement that I too could perhaps be a singer-songwriter, someone who could perform at a pinch at least some of my songs without the need for other musicians or 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 road crew or whatever else and and i i think that was an idealistic point of view but i have done it on many occasions so i i i, I did feel i i learned that from roy roy was a you know roy was a bit of a ham you know he he sounded like everything was completely off the wall unrehearsed spontaneous it was absolutely not the case. Roy, Roy was a very, very clever guy at 
ambling onto a stage, appearing to be completely stoned, which which he was not. He was half stoned, but he was never completely <laughs> stoned. Roy, you know, would would appear like he could barely stand up, or 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 strum a guitar, talk, let alone you know perform a set. But at the end of the show, if, if you if you met him, you know, backstage in some dressing room or in the corridor, he, he seemed you know completely compass mentis and perfectly all right. It was all a stage act. I mean, not all, but it it was it was dramatized for the stage, and I think he did that to an extent in recording as well. A lot of these ad libs and little things were were quite um, um, thrown in deliberately to give that impression of spontaneity, to give that impression of some some very candid and personal, off the wall kind of way of making music. Whereas, in fact, I think they were much more theatrical than uh, than than the listener would have imagined. But that that's in no way to take away from from what Roy did. I think it was the fact that he could go go onto a stage, big or small, and hold an audience spellbound because you were on the edge of your seat. You you didn't quite know what he was going to say or do next. He would some stop halfway through a song and start talking about politics or mm. whatever I mean, it was that 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 was part of the fun of it but he definitely understood the elements of uh of stage presence stage performance and theatrical um and dramatic rendition and end of speech yes <laughs> it's uh danny eccleston here uh, from mojo um i've just got a question about um the content of uh roy's songs because uh, having met him and interviewed him myself, like sort of he, uh, one of the great things that I like about this record is that it's it's like spending time with Roy Harper. There's 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 there isn't much of a uh, a persona there. He's he's a very argumentative fellow with lots and lots of strong views on things, and um, and he was very much like sort of kicking against the idea, you know, the kind of nicey nicey kind of hippie vibes of the time and also trying to present like musical um ideas that kind of challenged the mainstream and challenged you know sort of the way that people were listening to music um was that an influence on you a little bit but you know as you say roy was an argumentative fellow it probably still is although he may have mellowed a little bit in his uh in his uh senior state of uh bus pass but um, that I don't think was a particularly attractive part of his personality. He was a laid back kind of a guy most of the time. And, and I think his, um, his strong views were the kind of strong views you would hear down at your local pub or in your, you know, or in a, you know, in a, I don't know, in a, any university canteen or wherever it might be, but that's what people do. Roy just got paid for it. And, and, and one of his, Dare I say, failings? I think was that he, 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 he came, he came to the world of professional recording with the innate mistrust, dislike, and um, ultimately, I suppose, hatred of the record company entity, that the business of, of music, and so many artists have done that. I mean, I've, I've talked to lots of people who've who've just still to this day think that the record company are their enemy mm. you know they they see promoters as their enemy they, they fail to realize we're all in the same business and, and most of the guys who were becoming the head honchos and record companies at that point were music fans fanatics who came to music, whether it was Chris Blackwell from a reggae background into forming Island Records, as Island Records became a, a bastion of early progressive rock music and folk music, um, of uh, Richard Branson, of course, with Virgin, of Terry Ellis and Chris Wright with Chrysalis, and and, um, um, and there were two or three other guys at the same time who, who did the same sort of a thing. It was as, as a result of of being music fans, they wanted to they wanted to help build and promote careers of of their contemporaries of young new musical artists, 
Peter Jenner, I think, was a, a, yeah. a early uh, manager or associate of Roy Harper's. And what went wrong there, I don't yeah. know. But um, at one point, I remember Terry Ellis, probably because of the connection between uh, Roy Harper and, and me and knowing about his uh, relationship with Jimmy Page and uh, Pink Floyd guys that uh, perhaps Terry thought, well, we'd better sign him up. And Roy, I, I mean, you know, it's not, not my business to tell people, you know, to either to negotiate contracts or tell them what they shouldn't or shouldn't do. But I didn't think it was going to be a good fit because I felt that, um, you know, Terry would try to turn Roy into something that he wasn't. And, and Roy at that time wanted to be turned into something that he wasn't. And I think he saw this as an opportunity to, you know, to transform himself to a world stage playing arenas and mm. things. And, you know, he, he, he was on tour, I think, with, um, I think with Led Zeppelin at some point. And that, that I believe, you know, it would have been a rough ride. Yeah. You know, if you were a fan going to see Zeppelin and Roy Harper ambled onto the stage before the show, sat down and tried to talk politics and, you know, you, you would have got pretty impatient, I think. And, um, so I think Roy had a rough ride. And I certainly said to Terry, just it would be the wrong thing. I, I absolutely do not want to be the guy who introduces Roy Harper to a, a hostile audience and then has to go on stage to plead with them not to throw things at him and do whatever, which I have had to do on other occasions <laughs> with with other artists. And it's it's really um, you know, such an embarrassment to 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 be in that position. So Roy was, you know, in in that perhaps ever more justified state of mind that the the business was out to get him and deny yeah. him the uh, the opportunity to um, further his career. It's interesting what you were saying, Ian, um, about Roy and, and kind of uh, that sort of his own worst enemy in a way. Researching a bit of research for this podcast, I found um, an interview that Carl Dallas did with Roy uh, for Melody Maker, literally just before this album came out, the one we're talking about. And the headline is, is Roy the man to succeed Dylan? So it's obviously being presented as this puff piece about how Roy Harper might be the next Bob Dylan. And it's a feature in which Roy succeeds in proving that no, he won't be the next Bob Dylan because he he slags everyone off. He slags off the London folk scene. He talks about how he's not influenced by folk, but influenced by Albert Ayler and Cecil Taylor. Um, there's a reference to a disastrous appearance at a Cyril Tawney benefit at the Festival Hall a few days earlier where he was kind of pursued by angry crowds. And it's really funny because even in a feature proclaiming him as as the new Dylan, the feature itself undermines the claim by just simply describing Roy Harper's nature, you know, mm -hmm. and it's kind of, it, it sort of totally, it totally bears out what you were saying. And also, I mean, it's interesting that Roy himself and a lot of his fans, surprisingly, are very dismissive of this album. They're very dismissive of Shel Talmy's uh, pop production. They're dismissive of Keith Mansfield, Keith Mansfield's arrangements. But I, I I wondered what you thought because I love that juxtaposition between the this kind of almost kind of improvisatory sort of avant-garde presentation of folk music and these really rather lush arrangements and sort of beautiful pop production. Yes, I I, th I think they were done very sensitively. I don't think in any way it detracted from the songs, and there would have been a sameness about the album if it had just been Roy whacking it out on an acoustic guitar and singing it. I think the fact that we did have this rather more varied musical texture from song to song was one of the things that that really helped identify individual songs and give them a a special place and straight away you know you're you're locked into um into the idea of uh, uh, bass and drums yeah albeit a very light touch of drumming and and an acoustic stand up bass um and um I, I don't think in any way they were out of place. I think no. I think they were very sensitively done, and the the string arrangements are just they they don't they don't grab your attention in the sense of introducing melodic lines or phrases. They are very legato textural things, and, mm. and they they just give you a a bit of atmosphere. They 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 they, they create a a sky for the landscape that Roy's singing about, a sense of where sky meets the horizon, that, yeah. that's the strings. 
and what happens between the horizon and the foreground is is what what Roy is is singing about. But you know that I I, I found this album really just the right album at the right time. Th- this this one is the summer of '68. It really yeah. is for me something special in my own personal life. But I think um, I think what came later was perhaps more important songs sung in a more important way. Um, this one just invites you in to a, a world where you are another of the the characters on on a stage, which yeah. is the stage setting of Roy's of Roy's. It, that, 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 that's again what I, I think I, I, I see what, when I when I hear the songs, I I see a theatrical stage mm. with a backdrop, painted backdrop. Um, that, that looks like Hampstead Heath yeah. and, and and characters who come and sit on a bench and chat to each other or behave, you know, in, like in waiting for Godot or something. I mean, it's that kind of non sequitur nature of, of some of the, the characters that Roy talks about. You, you, you are intrigued by them, but in a way you're not invited to know too much about them. It is just the visual presence of them that, that is, uh, is depicted in song lyrics and, and music in my more singer songwriter personality i am i am indebted to to roy for what i described as a signpost you know it was it was almost like um signpost seeing something saying this way you know yes. and it was a, a direction you could you could possibly follow i mean there were maybe other potential routes that google maps might have offered you to get to the same destination but th- this one was the e- that was the easy route and it tended to it tended to be you know, somewhere, you know, probably a route starting in Wardour Street and ending up in uh, Hampstead Heath. 55 years ago this month, you played the first Hyde Park Free Festival, I think, with Roy on the bill as well. Well, it was, I already knew Roy Harper at that point, and, and Pink Floyd were, were on the bill, as I recall, and, um, and the then uh, title Tyrannosaurus Rex before they became T-Rex. So in a way, we were, uh, for all I know, John Peel was the compare or something, because it, it was a kind of a, not exactly a close-knit society, but people tended to know each other because they, not because they went to the same pub in Wardour Street, you know, between sessions at the Marquee Club, but just because we were all in the same in the same game. We, we seemed to be standing on what I remember it was almost like a, a, a boxing ring. It was about that size, but without the ropes around the edge. And and it was a very small stage, and it was a relatively small audience. But it was the very first Hyde Park concert; it had never been done before. And so it was, however many people were there, I, I, I honestly don't recall. But it it looked like a pretty big crowd by the standards of what I was used to. And um, you know, we went on and did our bits, and it was probably a, I'm guessing, you know, half an hour, forty five minutes, or whatever, and. And um, and I probably got out of there because I'm not I'm not very good in crowds of people. I, I suffer from claustrophobia, surrounded by by lots of people, and I, I'm not a fan of rock music or pop music or concerts or movies or anything that involve me having to be you know jammed up against with mm. other people. I, I'm uncomfortable now as I was back then, so I, I probably did my bit and legged it. I mean, I can remember playing at the Albert Hall, um, possibly. In money, even I'm not sure if it was late '68 or early '69. The first time I played there it was on a bill with other artists. I remember leaving as soon as I could, and <laughs> um, walking to the nearest tube station, getting getting a train to I think Camden Town, where I knew there was a Chinese restaurant where I could pick up a takeaway and then walk 20 minutes up the road to Kentish Town and eat it in my bed sit. And it was a strange thing eating egg fried rice and. You know, chicken chow mein. Thinking, you know, half an hour ago I was on stage at the Albert <laughs> Hall. <laughs> it was it was the anti rock star kind of a predicament, really, to be. You know, <laughs> I wasn't thumbing a lift like Roy Harper probably thumbed a lift to get home, but I I I, I use the tube, and um, it, it uh, something the the anti rock star thing is something that I think epitomised what I thought Roy was about. I love how you, um, in a way, redefined this album for me, Ian, uh, just in terms of that kind of intimate, almost conversational relationship with it in a bedsit. You know, and from what you were saying about 
your your fear of crowds and the, the way in which you kind of you know you just want to be, that sense of it kind of communicating with you almost on a one one on one level you know is is really powerful i think and kind of made me will make me listen to the album differently when i go back to it that sense of kind of that that intimacy and also i think kind of i was listening to the track highgate cemetery which is roy i think singing into the into the body of his guitar to get that kind of particular sort of vocal quality and there's definitely something i mean we've talked we haven't talked about specific influences but we've talked about ways in which Roy might have influenced later Tull songs to come. There's definitely something very Tull-like on Highgate Cemetery, I feel. Yeah, I, I, uh, on Roy's first album, there was a song, I think it was just called Blackpool. Mm. And um, I didn't hear that until some, some time a bit later. I mean, you know, a couple of years after I, I heard Come Out Fighting Genghis Smith. But the... Um, uh, I thought, well, I, I can't write a song. I mean, I wanted to write a song, something about my s- slightly difficult relationship with Blackpool growing up mm. in Blackpool as a teenager. And I, I I didn't want to be too negative. I wanted something that was a bit summary and and, and would reflect perhaps the, the post-Victorian time in Blackpool when my parents, for example, as, as youngsters met my father's from Scotland. My mother was from Manchester, and they met in the in the Tower Ballroom at, uh, at in Blackpool, at, you know, dancing. And um, I wanted something that would capture that kind of a feeling about Blackpool. It would it would present it in a a deck chair and um, you know saucy postcards and uh, um, something that, that that I think was dying out very very fast at the time that I moved to Blackpool as a child. But um, working working for a company called Walkie Snaps on the uh, on the prom at Blackpool, delivering and picking up films that were taken of uh, holidaymakers, whether they liked it or not, they were snapped, um, and um, offered a, a little ticket which they could redeem. And 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 I was the guy who rode a um, a moped up and down frantically up the the length of. Blackpool prom up to North Shore and developed the uh, the films in a, a, a in a primitive laboratory up there. So that was my first brush with photography as a short time, you know, short period of being a professional in that world. So I, you know, these were the things that I wrote about on my song called "Up the Pool." I'm going yes. up the pool from down the smoke below, going London up to Blackpool to visit my parents and. And whatever, and and one of the few occasions that I ever recall, and, and this is a brilliant introduction to you playing something completely different, which was that Roy is one of the very few artists that I've I've listened to doing a cover of one of my songs and leaving me with the feeling that he had made it his own. Oh. It really sounds like a Roy Harper song when he does, as he did on some kind of a tribute album thing. Uh, he, he he recorded "Up the Pool." And um, I was quite honoured that he 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 did that, and and it certainly has a certain quality about it that that I found very um, very natural and very endearing. So um, I think we, um, we, we 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 could listen to Roy's version of yeah. Up the Bull, which you probably will find somewhere on the, uh, I think on, that's the... on the wacky world of the internet. <laughs> I think that's the track that we should we should end on, Ian. And and thank you so much for for coming in today to talk about a formative influence on you, but also a record that I think you've changed. I always like it when the guest sort of changes the way I sort of hear a record, or we'll go back to it and listen to it in a different way. And I'll be listening to it with the sense of you being in that you know little bedsit in North London and listening to it almost as kind of you know, someone else from Lytham St. Anne's kind of communicating with you and giving you giving you this kind of possible way ahead for the next stage of your own band. That was, it was thoroughly enjoyable, Ian. Thank you. Well, n- next time around, we'll, we'll do, uh, we'll do uh, Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Oh, what a, what a great choice. <laughs> this is Up the Pool, written by Ian Anderson and performed by Roy Harper from the 2008 LP to Cry You a Song, a collection of Tull Tales, released on IND Records. Three, four. I'm going up the pool from down the smoke below 
to taste me mum's jam sarnies and see our anti-flow Where the candy floss salesman watches ladies in the sand Down for free weekends in the hope that they'll be meeting Mr. Universe, well you never know You're listening to the Mojo Record Club. Now we get to the part of the show where we rave about some new records. This week we're focused on two archive releases. The first is Picture of Bunny Rabbit, a collection of previously unreleased material by the late New York-based disco producer, cellist, avant-garde composer and songwriter Arthur Russell, originally recorded in 1985 and 1986. Around the same time he released his career-defining masterpiece, World of Echo. It's the latest LP from Audica Records, who've basically put out all of uh, Arthur's archive releases since 2004. And the thing that surprises me listening to this is the ongoing high quality of the material. There is a suspicion amongst any of us who kind of buys reissues and certainly buys kind of previously um, unheard and undiscovered recordings that they might get to a point where the label um, is scraping the barrel. And this still doesn't seem to be the case with the Arthur Russell archive releases. Here is the first track to be released from Picture of Bunny Rabbit. It's called The Boy With A Smile. And it's released on Audica Records. And it's a track I find simultaneously fragile, mysterious, intimate, mercurial, beguiling, but also I think ultimately unknowable. So this is it, it's called The Boy With A Smile. You found me track is just so amazing it's kind of interesting how influential he's been over the last you know sort of probably 10 years where you know probably previous to that uh he'd been very much neglected as a kind of uh, as an influence and then suddenly I suppose with what's happened with the crossover of rock and kind of electronic music since the year 2000 he's like uh, what he did now seems extraordinarily prescient and yeah. uh i mean even more poignant given that it's recorded so close to his death so there's the sense of kind of of him disappearing and fading and it's kind of unknowable really how much of that is intentional in the sound and i like that fact that the, the fact that you can't completely locate the meaning it might just be that it's because of the way it's recorded and the fact that it's a demo and so it's incomplete or there may be authorial intention in the fact that it has this kind of um disappearing quality the sense that it kind of it's it's fading out in the moment that you're listening to it but then you know because of the nature of arthur's life arthur's short life it just a kind of accrues a sort of an extra power and poignancy because of that he kind of is the bedroom producer before the bedroom producer, isn't he? You when you get to that sort of point where musicians can't afford to be in bands, they can't afford to tour with four or five musicians. So music is suddenly created in home studios, in bedrooms and sort of released on Bandcamp. And he kind of defines that aesthetic before it existed. I think that kind of intimate um, sensitivity and a kind of rejection of like sort of what what you're meant to be as a guy in front of a yeah, mic absolutely like, there, there aren't any kind of clear gendered lines and i think you can kind of retrospectively listen to nick drake and feel that there and also kind of in in something of the kind of vulnerability of robert wire but definitely as a kind of you know queer musician arthur russell kind of feels so contemporary because he kind of seems completely in tune with this rejection of kind of any kind of 
clear lines of definition, both in terms of gender, but also in terms of sonics and music. You can kind of see like a parallel with kind of those notions of, for want of a better term, masculinity and how they kind of relate to the sound that he is creating. You know, clear lines, clear, clear borders and divisions have, are dissolving as you listen to it. The record that you've brought in to talk about today, I think also captures a genre at the moment of risk-taking. Maybe sort of explain what the what record you've brought on to talk about today. Yeah, so uh, the record I've brought in is um, actually the Mojo cover mount CD for oh. the issue that comes up. <laughs> yes, it's always it's always Danny coming in with the new Mojo <laughs> cover mount CD. I realised last time I came in, it was the Kinks um, cover mount CD. And at this time, it's the uh, our Stax cover mount CD, which is called um, uh, Stax Uncovered. Um, which is a um, uh, it's a sampler of uh, a new box set that's come out uh, via Craft Recordings, which is um, which is a box set of songwriter demos, which is very much don't run away. Um, you know, so again, like so, this is like the demo as you know a revelation. You know, um, yeah. rather than a demo as a like sort of a oh I'll make this good later. Um, kind of recording. What's exciting about these songs is 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 again this this invitation. There's a demo. There's Eddie Floyd's demo of six three four five seven eight nine, uh, which which later is a big hit for Wilson Pickett. Uh, but as it, it was written by Eddie Floyd and Steve Cropper, and uh, I mean. It, <laughs> It's like it's like Eddie Floyd has an amazing voice anyway. I mean, Knock on Wood is a brilliant record, uh, but um, he, you know, so the kind of the ownership of this this song and just the rawness of the vocal and the guitar backing, um, it, it's it's brilliant. While the stack sound that we know and love is so established, um, a lot of these songs don't. Um, play by those rules a lot of these recordings just feel really different okay we are going to play a little extract from the Stax craft recordings seven cd box set written in their soul it's my favorite track in the box set it is mac rice's demo of respect yourself written by mac rice and luther ingram and first covered by the staple singers and later covered with ignominy by Bruce Willis and the Kane Gang. This reveals the roots of the song, its original propulsive, sweaty power, but also its base meaning. I was listening to this track thinking, my God, I know what Respect Yourself is about now. You hear this version and you are scared straight into taking as Samakrai says, taking that sheet off your face because it's a brand new day and respecting yourself and stop putting people down. It has a fire and a power and a sweat that is just incredible. So let's listen to a little bit of that. I mean, you're so right about that track, Andrew, like the sweat and the power, the grit. I mean, if somebody told you there's this new R.L. Burnside recording that they found, you know, and, and played you this, you go, yeah, yeah, I can. Yeah, it's it's so gut bucket. Stax exists in this kind of space between the church and the and the kind of juke joint, mm. doesn't it? And and um, a lot of the finished versions because because like so there's two or three of these songs become staple singers songs yeah staple singers records and 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 the staple singers kind of churchify them a bit more because they are the staple singers whereas like the demo versions are kind of a bit more earthy i think they're kind of what's secular about some of the songs 
is 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 more present in the demo. Controversially, I am not the biggest Stax fan, and I think that's largely to do with how so many of those tracks have been overexposed, overdone in terms of kind of needle drops in movies or used on used in soundtracks, especially for nostalgia purposes. Probably before listening to this collection, I would have told you that if I never had to hear another version of Respect Yourself, Mustang Sally, Knock on Wood, I would, would have been a very happy boy. And yet the versions here reconnect me with what I think those songs are about. It's like hearing them anew, but it's also hearing them with, as you say, the sort of fire of the church, but also the filth of the juke joint. And those two things combined, I suddenly kind of felt like these are great songs. They are amazing songs where I've just heard the original too many times. Going back to what Ian was saying about listening to Roy Harper and feeling that here was something within the folk idiom, but utterly fresh that spoke to him. I felt the same listening to this compilation. I felt here are kind of, here is a world of soul that I think I'd closed myself off to. Stack soul. It's slick. It's overexposed. It's, it's covered by Bruce Willis. I don't want to hear any more of it. And yet I listened to these tracks and I, I just thought, wow, this is some of the greatest music. These are some of the greatest songs ever created. Thank you for listening to the Mojo Record Club. Okay. You have been listening to Ian Anderson, Danny Eccleston, and myself. Andrew Mayle. That was the Mojo Record Club. We hope to see you at the next one. You can all join in. And look in the episode description for full details of all the tracks we played and how to sign up for the next episode. You've been listening to the Mojo Record Club. Never to be forgotten.